The following audio is from Community Bible Church in Nashville, Tennessee. For more information about our church, please visit us online at cbcnashville.org. You guys can have a seat again. Just prior to praying, um, this week I uh, did a video on the Book of Lamentations. We're, we're having this video series where we're going through each book of the Bible and looking at how redemption's at the heart of each and every one of them. And, and we're in just we're in the prophets, and we did we did the Book of Lamentations, and it had been a while since I had read the Book of Lamentations, but. It's a book about lament, and it's the, um, it's whoever the author is, probably Jeremiah, but whoever the author is, is looking at Jerusalem being ruined by the, Babylon, by the Babylonians. And so you're seeing your homeland just be tore apart. And the first two chapters of this is just death and destruction and despair and lament and all this stuff. And then he gets to chapter 3. Watching their life just be tore apart. I mean, I'm sorry, it's probably, they had worse days than any of us have had in this room. And here is what the author of Lamentations says. This is uh, Lamentations 3, 22 through 23. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Just reading or just singing this song this morning, just reminded that I, I know many of us can come into this place with brokenness and despair and, and questioning, Lord, where are you? Have you forgotten me? Have, are you far off? It's, you know, it's the Psalm 22 um, instance. And, and, and yet, regardless of the mourning and even the destruction that can be in our life, all of us can say, great is your faithfulness every single day. I, I hope that you, you could hear these, th- th- those words that your fellow believers were proclaiming to you and just hear um, the words from Scripture. Let's pray, and then we're going to jump into Psalm, or into John 7. Lord, thank you for your faithfulness, that we can be here and know that regardless of the date or time, regardless of the political season, regardless of what's going on in in our world corporately or in our world individually, that you are faithful to your promises. You've demonstrated that through your word, that through countless stories, through thousands of years, through so many moments of despair when these biblical writers were questioning where you were, and you demonstrated you're there. Lord, help us today to rest in that. Knowing that regardless of what's going on individually in our lives, I mean, in, in the quietness of our own soul and in the quietness of our own despair, we can truly question, where are you? What's happening? Lord, bring to mind the truths that your mercies are new every morning. Lord, allow the Spirit to comfort us who are struggling with the knowledge that you are faithful and that we can trust, trust and rest in that. Be with us now as we look at John 7 in your name. Amen. Don't you wish we could just all get along in life? There would be no struggle, no drama, no disagreements. I don't like to disappoint people. I don't like to demonstrate where I uh, disagree with them. I don't like to offend individuals. I, I, I really don't. I wish my, the, my, the perfect world for me would be one that I would never have to agree to disagree. That we could all be on the same page, all have the same focus. None of us would be uh, mad or frustrated with each other. But that ain't possible. 
because we live in a broken world, because sin exists, because um, the prince of the power of the air has come in and just messed us all up. And so even the strife that we can see, even among believers, while it's evidence of the fall, is there that, that just points us to one day something is coming when we're no longer going to be fighting each other. And we've said this whole period that, that uh, the... John the Gospel writer is looking at with the Feast of Booths and Jesus with the, um, in, in Jerusalem with the religious leaders is one where he has to point out to these people, to these well-meaning people, to these really smart people, to these spiritual religious people that while you're saying good things, he has to disagree with them. You see, Jesus has been comparing the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of God and the rulers of this world and God as the ruler uh, with himself. And what he's been doing in this whole scene, and he's going to continue for a couple of chapters, is he's declaring that he is the one that Israel has been waiting for from the beginning. He's been comparing what Israel thinks the Messiah is going to look like with what he actually is going to look like. And there has been some struggle there has definitely been some comparisons going on. There's definitely been some strife. This morning, we're going to cover a large section of, of this chapter, but I will tell you we're going to hone in on one little section and, and sit there for um, just a little longer. So uh, keep up kind of for the first part, and then once we get to verse 37, we're going to slow down. I, I, I want to read the first section. This is 725 through 31. Some of the people therefore said... Is this not the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when this man, but we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come on my own accord. But he who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to kill him, but no one laid hands on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him and said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? What, as we're continuing in this story, we continue to see this juxtaposition between the people of Jerusalem and the religious leaders and then Christ. The people of Jerusalem from the beginning have always been far more um, understanding, understanding Christ. They haven't just outright rejected Christ as the religious leaders have done. I mean, every time that there's a Pharisee that approaches Christ, maybe with the exception of Nicodemus, as we're going to look at at, at the end of this section, everyone, everyone else has been like, no, you are not the Messiah because we have a list of things that the Messiah is and you do not fit the criteria that we have for the Messiah. But the people, as they've been listening to Jesus, as they've been watching Jesus, as they've been observing the miracles, as they've been trying to just kind of make all of these things make sense, are far closer to go, maybe, maybe he is the Christ. Just think back to last week. In the middle of the feast when the, the Jews started to marvel because Jesus was teaching like no other rabbi was teaching. And he was saying, yes, you're trying to seek me, but you're seeking me from the wrong standpoint. You're trying to seek me and it's trying to fit your traditions. Rather, you should seek me and just try to understand that I am in fact the Messiah. And as the religious leaders immediately 
question him, said, no, you're not the one. We can see here at the beginning some of the people of Jerusalem, some of the common folks, some of the weary pilgrims that came to this feast started to go, wait, maybe you are in fact the guy. Maybe you're the one that we've been waiting for. Well, as they pose this question to Jesus, and they pose this kind of irony because they're like, well, we know where you come from. You come from Galilee. We know who your mom and dad was. That was Mary and Joseph. We know details about you. But in their mind, they weren't supposed to know the details about the Messiah. Well, Jesus goes, listen, you might know from an earthly standpoint where I'm from. But you don't know from a heavenly standpoint of where I'm from. Now, this caused a lot of ruckus amongst the um, religious leaders. This definitely caused a lot of ruckus in Jerusalem with this feast. And so this led the religious leaders to finally just kind of put their foot or fist rather on a table and say, enough is enough. We've got to put this to rest. This is ruining our day. This is ruining our life. Let's finally make a decision. He clearly needs to be arrested and killed. And that's what they say. As we move on, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering about these things. And the chief priest and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Now these were Levitical officers. This was like the temple guard, the temple police. Where they would then send him and say, okay, this man is blasphemous. He's saying that he's Messiah. Clearly he's not the Messiah. He needs to be arrested. He needs to be silenced. And they sent these individuals to go arrest Jesus. And this is what Jesus said. I mean, I I love it because Jesus is like, Like, no, that's not going to happen. Jesus said to him, I will be with you a little longer. And then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. Now this just shocked the religious leaders at the time. Because they're like, "Uh, excuse me, we're in charge here. We can go wherever we want. Who are you to say that where you are going, we cannot come? We have much power and authority. We will find you wherever you try to hide. I mean, this is intimidation 101. And the Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? Essentially, is he going to run away from us if we try to arrest him? Is he going to try to evade the police? What does he mean when he says, you will seek me and you will not find me and where I am, you cannot come? It's kind of left on a cliffhanger. I mean, Jesus solidly understands, I am doing the Father's will. When he says, no, I'm going to be with you a little longer, essentially what he's meaning is my time has not yet come. There is nothing that you are going to do to change God's timing, change God's sovereign will, change how this is supposed to happen. He is resting in the fact, Christ is resting in the fact saying, yeah, you can threaten me all you want, but that's not going to happen. Then all of a sudden, it jumps to the last day of the feast. This is where we're going to kind of Hang out for a moment. It says, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus had not yet been glorified. I want to stop for a moment and give some background to this feast and what's going on. We've hinted at it in the past, but I just want to give a fuller explanation. 
This is the first of two focal points during this feast. We're going to get to the next one in chapter 9. The feast was a feast of booths. And as, we, as I've said um, along the way, this feast commemorated God's provision for the Israelites during the sojourning of the wilderness. Specifically, the feast reminded the Israelites of the two benefits that God had for Israel in the wilderness. The first was manna from heaven, and the second was water from the rock at Horeb. And these provisions were celebrated during the Feast of Booths, and specifically they were celebrated on the seventh day. So this was the, the, the culmination of the feast. People would come into Jerusalem. These pilgrims would be there. They would, have, they would have much feast. They would have a time of gathering. They would get, see their friends again for the first time. And then on the seventh day, there was this um, processional of high priests, of Levites, and all of the people would line the streets to watch this one specific ceremony. Now, when I describe this ceremony to you, the next time a ceremony like this will happen in Jerusalem during this time period is going to be the triumphal entry. And I want you kind of, as I'm describing this, to see how Jesus replaces this triumphal entry. Now, during this ceremony, during the Feast of Booths, what would happen is golden basins, giant golden basins, would be filled with water from the pools of Siloam. Where the priests and the, and the um, Levites would fill these giant bowls and they would carry them throughout the city streets from the pool of Siloam and they would go back to the temple. Now they would come in through the water gate, which is on the south side in the inner temple. And as they entered into the water gate, there would be three trumpet blasts. Now, if you think of trumpet blasts, I definitely think of like the Exodus wanderings and all of the times that trumpets were, were used there. And as they entered in, they would be celebrating God by carrying this water. But there was something else going on during this time. During this whole processional, there would be a choir singing. And it would be singing the Psalms of Hallel, starting in Psalm 113 all the way through 118. Just if you have a Bible... Turn to Psalm 113 through 118. We're not going to read it all. But just hear the tone that's coming out of these Psalms of Hallel. Every single year, this is what's going to be sung. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. 14. When Israel went out from Egypt, the house of Jacob, from all the people of strange languages, Judah became his sanctuary and Israel his dominion. 115. Not to us, O Lord, oh, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nation say, where is their God? O God is in heaven and he does all that he pleases. 116, I love the Lord because he has heard my, he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy because he inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I will call on him as long as I live. 117, Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all people. For great is his steadfast love towards us. And faithfulness to all the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Now it would stop when it got to 118. This is where the pilgrims would join in. Every male pilgrim there that had journeyed to this feast. Again, this is the culmination of the feast on the last day would join in. And they would join in by one holding a willow branch in their right hand and a citrus fruit in their left hand. And they would raise their hands up and they would cry aloud three times, give thanks to the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord. 
That's just happened. Psalm 118 would be sung. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say his steadfast love endures forever. I could continue. Once the water basins were in the temple, it would be offered as a sacrifice to the Lord in the morning. Next would come the drink offering in the afternoon. They would be poured out in their respective silver bowls offered up to the Lord and poured on the altar. And every single year at this time, every mind would go back to God's provision, his blessing on the nation of Israel in the wilderness. In their mind, it was, uh, they, they could not escape what they were celebrating. What they were celebrating was the Lord providing protection and care and safety and water for the nation of Israel in the wilderness. Turn back to Exodus 17. We covered this several years ago when, when we went through it. Uh, it might be the one passage that stands out the most in all of the Exodus. I, I didn't see it coming, but I love this story. The nation of Israel was journeying from the Red Sea to Mount Sinai during this time. And they had seen amazing things. They had been rescued by the ten plagues. They, they had saw the Red Sea be split and they walked through on dry ground. And then the, the Egyptians walked through and be covered and die. They then sung a song of praise in, in Exodus 15 and 16. They've seen manna from heaven fall down when they said there's no food. They've seen God do amazing things and they get out here. They're halfway to Mount Sinai and all of a sudden they don't have any water. And what do they do? Start to complain. Lord, where are you? Lord, why are you here? And they are a faithless people. Just listen to 17.1. All the congregations of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rehadim. And there was no water for the people to, to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you, why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and your children and your livestock with thirst? I mean, at this point, you would think they would go, well, I don't know how we're going to get water, but God gave us food out of nowhere. God split the Red Sea and we didn't see that coming. God allowed all these plagues to come. And no, they were such a faithless people. They were like, they were cursing God. They were questioning his, his prophet that he sent. Moses, what are you doing with us? And what does Moses do? Moses cried out to the Lord. This is verse 4. What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of, the, of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock of Horeb. You shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? 
It's, it's easy to read this and go like, oh, that's, that's, all, that's amazing. Imagine if you were dying of thirst and you were in a wilderness and you've searched long and hard for water. These people didn't come and go, hey, my water bottle's empty. What can I do? This isn't like the kid in the back seat and the parent goes, there's a case of water back there. Just grab another one. No, they were at the end of their rope. They did not know where to find anything else. And they go to Moses and they go, we can't find a way out. Therefore, we have to die. Therefore, you are cursing us. I mean, it is total, it is a total and complete moment of disobedience, unfaithfulness to God. And God tells Moses, well, go take your staff and strike this rock that it says, I will stand before you on the rock of Horeb and strike the rock and water will come out. Now imagine when that happened. And this people who was thirsty, dying of thirst, looking for that sustenance, looking for that satisfaction, saw water rush out of a rock in the wilderness. And then they went, oh, God is taking care of us. Well, who was that rock? It says in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 4, Christ was the rock. And the person that was being struck, the person that was being punished from Israel's disobedience because Israel didn't deserve water because God's wrath must be poured out against sin. Israel deserved to die right there for his sins. But the person who was punished was not Israel, but was Christ. And from that punishment flowed out the sustaining refreshment of water. This is what Israel's celebrating. As they're carrying the water from the pool of Siloam up to the temple, they're thinking back to the rock of Horeb. They're thinking about how God functionally gave them water to sustain their life. And now imagine Jesus. I don't know where you're standing, it doesn't say. Whether it's in the temple, whether it's on the road, in some place where the pilgrims can hear him. And as he's watching this processional of water going down the road, he goes, if anyone thirsts, like they thirst in the wilderness, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. I mean, it is a indiscriminate offer. If anyone thirsts, if anyone wants a drink, I have water to offer. Come. Come. And I will give it. And you can take it. And you can drink. And even this drink is one that does not run out. One that the, you know, the rock doesn't stay there. No, rather, and whoever believes in me, as the scripture says, out of his heart will, th- will flow rivers of living water. The wilderness was a blessing for Israel. Because it was in the wilderness that they came to understand their need for Yahweh for God. We don't understand our need for water when we're sitting in a water park somewhere. It's all around us. But if we're in the wilderness and there's no water, we understand our need for water. God had brought these people to a place where they 
had nothing else to choose. They had used up all of their resources. They had tried all their other things. And they had finally gotten to a point, instead of turning to God, they were cursing God. But it's from that point that God demonstrates, okay, now that you're at the end of yourself, I'm I'm going to demonstrate that the only person you've ever needed is me. The wilderness was a blessing because they understood their thirst. Here's the thing, we, we still live in a wilderness, in a spiritual wilderness. And the wilderness that we live in, the wilderness that is the kingdom of man, that is the city of man, is a wilderness without God. And we need God just like we need water. And yet, we live in a land that has artificial hydration stations. What does that mean? We live in a land that it looks like water. It lies to us and says it's water. It demonstrates and says it's going to satisfy, but in the end, it's going to kill us. It's all of these water fountains around that we we look to and go, oh, this is what's going to satisfy, but it never quite does. I've used the illustration before. It's like being stuck floating in the middle of the ocean, longing for water and realizing that the liquid that is surrounding you is actually going to kill you and not sustain you. That's the same thing that this world is. And yet in this world, with our lack of water, we live in a time period, we live in an age, in a city that has lied to us about all of the ways that we can be satisfied. Because everything out there is an appeal. Come over here and you can be satisfied. Come over here and you can rest. Come over here and you can be filled up. Think for a moment when, when you've truly been parched when you've truly been thirsty, when you've wanted water, whether you've been working outside for a long time, whether you've been going on a hike and you, and you ran out of water too soon, whether you're on a road trip and I don't know, just think, I'm sure there's some point in your life when you truly have been thirsty. Think about the feeling after you take that first drink. You guzzle as much water as you possibly can get. Probably it's slopping down the sides of your mouth because you just have to get it. But think about the reaction once you have it. Isn't that like a common satisfaction? I know for me every time it's like, I'm just going to sit down and hold my glass because this is what I want and I'm going to drink more of it. What happens is our world lies to us and says that there's all of these other things out there that can produce that sense of satisfaction that that glass of water does when we're, when we're parched. But what happens it runs out. Just like regardless of the moment when we're, we've had all the water we need, wait a minute, we're going to want some more. All of these other lies, all of these other idols, all of these other artificial hydration stations lie to us. I mean, I, we, we, suburbans, the, the, the suburbs are built on this premise. Suburbanites are, we just, we are sucked in by all these false things, Right? We think if we can have the right house with the right yard, with the number of kids, with the right job, go on the right vacations, have the right retirement, create the right stability, what? We're going to be satisfied. That's what we're chasing after. I mean, we do this with our lives of like, maybe if, if we can join the right country clubs, maybe if, I'll pick on myself, we can go to the right CrossFit gym, maybe we can have enough crumble cookies, maybe we can have the designer house, the designer wardrobe, the designer lifestyle. We think to ourselves, if we can curate all of our specific needs, we will be satisfied. And our world is masters at shoving this down our throats. 
They're masters at offering this to us. This is what you need to be satisfied. Our devices are filled with this. Our conversations are filled with this. Of Oh, here's the thing in your life that you're missing. But none of them satisfy. Because at best they blind us to the fact that we are dreadfully thirsty. And the only thing that will satisfy is Christ. When Jesus was in Jerusalem looking at these pilgrims, appropriately celebrating God's faithfulness to the nation of Israel, what he was thinking is, you don't need this basin, you need me. When we look at the suburbs and we think, okay, you might be able to curate your life and check all the boxes that you need, but the thing that you need most is Jesus. What our world needs is Jesus. That's why, going back, our mission statement is we want to exist to help people know, love, and serve Jesus Christ, and in so doing, grow the kingdom of God. Why? Because anything else besides that would be foolish. Seriously. Anything else that's not, you need to meet Jesus. You need to know Jesus. That aching in your soul can be satisfied by Jesus is a lie. What lies are you guys believing? Because I have to check my own heart all the time. Because I'm a sinner and a saint, but a sinner living in a broken body in a broken world. And I can be so easily sucked into that lie of, oh, maybe if I can get a new house, a new wardrobe, a new job, not no, a new truck, something will satisfy. What's that lie that you're believing, thinking, oh yeah, the thing that I need to be satisfied is anything else besides Christ? But here Jesus, before these pilgrims, can sit back and go, if anyone thirsts, if anyone is in need, if anyone is longing for anything, come to me and I'll let them drink. And the beautiful thing about this gift is it is a perpetual and unending gift because look how he finishes up. And whoever believes in me, as the scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Hey, Christian, do you realize that while you might think you need something else to be satisfied, as a believer, everything you need is inside of you, which is called the indwelling Holy Spirit? That your eternal life, your, your everlasting and, 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 and presence here, you can have satisfaction and trusting knowing that everything is taken care of because of the Spirit inside of you. That that thirst that we can, that water that we can so easily be searching for, here he goes, no, it's out of his heart flows that living water. Essentially what he's saying is, if you're looking for that satisfaction, it's not found from without. It's found from within. And as John says, which is the spirit. This is the same appeal that Jesus had in Matthew 11. Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Same appeal. Come to me all who thirst and you will drink. This is also the same appeal that he gave to the woman at the well. This person knew she was thirsty. This person knew she needed something. This person knew she, she was not satisfied with her life because she saw the brokenness that was there. The difference is she couldn't walk into Jerusalem and participate in that, in that feast because she was a sinner. She knew it, but Jesus offered and said, come to me. He now walks into the religious elite the good people of the day, the people that think they have it all together and looks at all of the pomp and circumstance and all of the discipline and all the diligence and all the faithfulness and all the stuff and offers the same thing. So 
You might be here this morning and you're that good person. You're that good Christian. You've got everything together. No, I'm going to have the same appeal. If you are thirsty, if you are struggling to find assurance, if you're struggling to satisfy your life, what you need is Jesus, not something else. For the sake of time, we're gonna, I'm going to quickly read this last section. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ is the offspring of David that comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. You see, our appeal about come to Christ is not going to be heard and understood and accepted by all. There will be some people that go, you are foolish, that is stupid, that looks like weakness, that that doesn't look like power. That is the worst way to um, set your life up by trusting in somebody that you've never physically met. And yet, others hear it and go, "That, that, that is, he is the Christ. Even look how amongst the religious authorities now, there's division. The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees and said to him, uh, why didn't you bring him? I mean, Jesus is not hiding at this point. So now the chief priests are like, uh, guys, you had a job. Why isn't he here? You should bring him here. And the officers answered, no one has ever spoken like this man. Essentially what they're saying is, I can't. There's something to his words that I can't get over. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Essentially now it's the religious authorities casting the people aside and going, they don't know what they're talking about. You shouldn't believe them. But Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, who was one of them, said, does your law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And they replied, are you too from Galilee? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. It is so easy for us to come to Jesus and to think that he is to approach him like he is an, just, just another area that we can be satisfied. That he's another thing that we can apply. That he's something else that we can add on. What Jesus says is, I'm not another thing. I'm the only thing. I'm the last thing. I'm the perfect thing. I just asked you this morning, as, as you're hearing this, you might be here. And you might be thinking, wow, I've been longing for the wrong thing. I've been aiming at the wrong thing. I've been hoping in the wrong thing. Christ is here today offering the thing that we so desperately need, which is hope. As we turn our attention towards communion, if you're here this morning and you haven't placed your faith in Christ, maybe this is the first time that you're hearing this, maybe you're, you're realizing, oh, maybe right now I've been trusting in the wrong thing. Here's what I would ask, that you don't participate in this meal with us, and I'll explain why. We take communion as the body of Christ to celebrate and to remind ourselves of the finished work of Christ. We take it to remind ourselves that the only hope that we have in life and death is him. That the water that we so desperately need to quench our thirst is not found by the stuff out in the suburbs that are good things, but we can pursue for the wrong things, but it's only found in Christ. And we don't want you to take it inappropriately. We don't want you to take it wrongly. We don't want you to take it in a manner that's unworthy 
of the gospel because we don't want it to confuse you. There is no part of the gospel that is you have to do this to get it, including communion. Every part of the gospel is it's been done by the finished work of Christ. So I'll pray and we can take this together. Lord, thank you for the body of Christ and for your word and for your perfect life. And thank you for the hope that we have in you. Lord, protect us from trusting in idols. Protect us from trying to satisfy our souls with other things. Lord, protect us from trusting in anyone but you. Thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. In your son's name, amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation from Community Bible Church. For more information, please visit us at 6005 Edmondson Pike in Nashville, Tennessee, or online at cbcnashville.org.